Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Florida wraps up the regular season with a uh, disappointing loss to uh, a Tennessee team that played quite well, particularly in the second half uh, today in Knoxville, Eric. Yeah, strange one that uh, started at, like, I suppose, like, uh, let's call it 11.30 Eastern time or whenever you first heard that, that Trey Mann wasn't going to be able to play. That definitely seemed like a, like a dagger. Like that was something that I heard and I was like, oh man, I, I don't think the Gators have any shot here. Uh, and then obviously the, the the game actually starts and Florida looks pretty good. Uh, not in the first couple of minutes, but uh, but after that, when they kind of got their footing under them, they, it started to look pretty good. And of course they, they get a pretty good lead there in the first half. And there was a time where it was like, oh, they, maybe they have this under control. Maybe they beat Tennessee down a key player again for the second time in the year, uh, but yeah, ultimately that uh, that second half got out of control pretty quick. So it was it was kind of a strange one because I mean, if you would have said uh, Florida plays without Trey Mann, you're probably thinking they lose, and you're probably thinking they lose by something close to what the final score was. But I, I don't know if it was the fact that that Florida did have that lead in the first half that they had a lead for some of the second half. Uh, may, maybe that made it sting a little bit more. But yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely an odd one and definitely a tough one, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think it was very frustrating because the first half was was quite good, particularly the first 16 minutes of the first half. Um, I mean, yeah, like you said, Florida, so unlucky all year, uh, hit by so many, so much adversity all season. And, you know, just for one good measure, you wonder if the basketball gods are ever going to even things out, but they, uh, they take Trey man away an hour before tip. Um, and you know, I don't know, maybe the, I thought the basketball gods were having some balance there because Florida made more than their fair share of like mid range jump shots in the first half. So I thought, ah, maybe the, the gods are being kind, but I thought Florida also played really well in the first half, took care of the ball. Uh, moved the ball quite well. I thought Colin Castleton was excellent out of double teams. Um, but the slippage kind of the last four minutes of the first half with Florida missing some layups and, and Tennessee cutting a 14-point lead to five at the break. Yeah, there are definitely some of those plays where, where Florida would have liked to have a couple of those chances at the rim back. Uh, there's no question. Uh, but, that, yeah, I think you mentioned it too. There was definitely some times where, where Florida also did make some shots that uh, you probably wouldn't expect them to make, like Noah Locke backing down Santiago Vescovi in, in the post and and Scotty Lewis playing a little bit of bully ball and 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 pushing guys under the hoop and finishing. And Colin Katzlin had a couple hook shots from pretty far out that were, even for him, who's got great touch, were like, oh, I didn't think that was going to fall. But uh, but it did. So so you probably thought some of that was going to come down to earth. But then there was also some moments where, man, I, I did think that Florida was getting just thrown out of the way on offensive rebounds. Just uh, Tennessee just dominating them in that kind of aspect of the game. And and the, the balls were not really falling to, to the volunteers, even though I thought that they were getting really good position. And then ultimately we saw in the second half that uh, – uh, it's it started to even out all the all those opportunities where they got themselves in good offensive rebounding position uh, in the second half they started to the, the ball finally started to find them and that was a that was a big game changer too so uh, Matt I I definitely think that uh, that that Florida fought pretty hard I mean I know that there was a few people out and about or around that said that this was a, a a matter of effort that Florida maybe did not want it as much as uh, as much as Tennessee uh, everyone who listens to the podcast knows that that is not. That that's probably my least favorite kind of analysis, uh, generally speaking. And I would say that was the the case in this one. I I don't think that Florida 
lacked for effort. There's, there's no question. I don't think they lacked for toughness. Uh, I think they lacked a whole lot uh, when it came to execution. Yeah, I thought uh, I would agree with you. I didn't think it was a particularly uh, tough effort. I did think in the first four minutes of, of the second half, I, I would have liked Florida to be a little more physical uh, in terms of protecting the glass. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't chalk this up to a 40-minute situation where they just got out-efforted by anyone. Um, and I would point out that having tired of Jimmy Dykes at some point, I switched to the radio broadcast and heard Mick Hubert actually say, well, you know, Florida's just gotten out-hustled and outplayed. And Lee Humphrey, uh, who I have to give a shout-out to for, for improving as much as he has over the last couple of years, proving that it's not easy to just become a color analyst. Um, and uh, Lee's gotten a lot better. And he said, well, I don't know, Mick. And he said, you know, uh, he said, he said, Tennessee's played pretty well. Uh, they've done some really nice things, especially defensively, which I think we can get into. Because uh, I thought in the first half, Florida's pick and roll offense was quite good. Two things I liked about it, Eric. One, the commitment to, to make Castleton a focal point of that pick and roll and get him involved. I thought without Trey Mann was obviously very important uh, to have Colin Castleton involved. And the other one, um, you know, while I don't, and I think you saw in the second half that this is not a long-term solution, uh, but at least you got a little bit away from Noah Locke as the primary ball handler in the pick and roll. Went to Scotty Lewis a couple times. It worked a little bit better. But where I really thought Florida made their uh, their living in the first half was defensively. Really nice job by Mike White uh, and the staff switching up defenses. Florida played some 3-2. They played some 3-2 that shifted very quickly back to man. man. They pressed off makes, uh, which I thought was good, at least effective in slowing Tennessee down. Uh, and I thought their switches were communicated well. And they did that all without their best two perimeter defenders. Obviously, they've been missing Keontae all year, but uh, without Trey Mann as well. Well, first of all, it was just when you when you said the uh, the Lee Humphrey, I don't know about that, Mick. I just heard that perfectly in his accent. Um, I just uh, I do I do love listening to to Lee Humphrey. Um, I don't I don't I'm not I'm not into the the listening to to the radio broadcast like during the game. But whenever I catch it on the highlights, or I'll, or I'll throw it on you know, half an hour before the game and listen to their pregame. It's, it's, it's good stuff. So I yeah. definitely enjoy that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Florida did a pretty good job and, and uh, defensively, I thought that they, like you mentioned, they, they kind of communicated a lot of uh, a lot of what Tennessee was doing where they're just kind of like running guys off baseline screens. I thought Florida handled that pretty well. And, and again, like, for Tyree Appleby, who I don't think is a great defender, I thought he sat down in a stance and moved the feet, moved his feet the best that he possibly could, and 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 had some good moments defensively, like like about as good as you could ask for from from Tyree Appleby. Uh, so there was definitely definitely some moments there that uh, that I liked, and uh, there's a couple things that Florida did offensively with the pick and roll that I liked. Um, first of all, so they've done a lot of those duck and ball screens where, you know, Colin Castleton sets the screen and then Anthony DeRuji or Osayo Sifo or Omar Payne is in the game that they, they kind of seal the help. And, and we've seen it so much this season where like Trey Mann or Tyree Appleby gets right to the rim and gets a layup. So, so that's, that's great when it works. But when it doesn't work, suddenly you've just got a whole lot of dudes in the paint and a whole lot of long arms around. And that's something that has gotten Florida's guards in trouble with that duck and ball screen offense is, is it just congests the paint so much. Uh, it makes for a lot of arms in there. And of course, that's going to cause some turnovers. So I did like that they went away from that, went to a little bit of spread pick and roll. Uh, and what what 
what that really did was it really simplified it for Tyree Appleby. So when Tyree Appleby mm-hmm. was taking these ball screens, he was looking to score. Like this was not a this was not Florida running their duck in ball screens. What where, where what they really want to do is like collapse the defense and get a drive and kick and attack a closeout and and work essentially playing dribble drive read and react just that starts with the ball stream like they were setting these for Tyree Applebeats to go get a shot for himself and I think that's why we saw a game that was the best that we've seen really from or what you know one of the best we've seen from Tyree Appleby I, I think this might have been his best getting to the hoop um at least or one of the best so so I I think it really simplified it simplified it for him and then um uh, I also think too that something I did like when what they did for for Scotty Lewis, and this is something I remember last year talking about that I wish they'd do for Scotty Lewis instead of just like running spread ball screen for him. They they ran that zoom action where they give him a dribble handoff into uh, into a pick and roll, so it kind of gives him an automatic advantage because defense is having to deal with the dribble handoff right into it right into a, a pick and roll that's pretty tough to defend and, and again the angle that they run that at is 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 a lot lower that so scotty lewis gets the ball kind of like around the free throw line extended and he can just turn an attack again it, it becomes an easier read than if you're running a high ball screen spread pick and roll he's got to read multiple defenders it really simplified it and, and it wasn't like it led to a ton of buckets but i thought that it was like a good way to use Scotty Lewis, uh, given the circumstances that they were like, well, we've got to use some of these guys offensively. So, so I do think Florida did some uh, some good stuff, but uh, I, I do think that Tennessee ultimately adapted to it pretty well. Uh, maybe we'll get to, we'll get to that in the way that that Tennessee really stymied Florida ultimately. But uh, but no, there there was some 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 good stuff that I was uh, appreciative to see. But when when Florida was on that early run. Yeah, no, and that's I you know I wanted to start with that because I thought it was one of the better halves that Florida had played. Uh, in a while. And, and, you know, of course it was very unfortunate that that Tennessee was able to close the gap uh, there with a, with an 11 to two run uh, after Florida had swollen the lead to 14, but, but that's how the half ended. Uh, Florida missed four uh, layups uh, at the basket in the final four minutes of the first half. So it wasn't like Florida was running bad stuff, really. They just, uh, you know, the rim was unkind on a couple different layups and, uh, it, that can happen, uh, but but the Gators actually did get the lead back to seven early in the second half, uh, and then that's really when there were a couple possessions where Tennessee imposed their will on the game. I thought uh, they had seven offensive rebounds, the balls in the first four minutes of the second half, and uh, all seven of those came on back-to-back possessions uh, where they just gobbled the Gators up on the glass, and I really thought one where they missed – four shots and and finally were able to get a bucket uh really energized the volunteers yeah those missed layups were definitely killers um i i I, there's man i just love to like watch some of the film with some of these players like harry appleby had one where he missed it uh where he's driving to his right hand and just the angle he was at i would have loved to have seen him take a reverse layup get to the other side of the rim and, and use that rim as protection from the shot blocker uh, it's something you see all these little guards in the NBA do, and they do it so well because they're playing against great athletes, and they need to be able to use that rim as protection when they when they get a drive like that. And I think that that's just something that might be maybe the next evolution of his game. And uh, again, some of these moments of like you you could tell they just 
went up a little bit scared against these some of this length yeah. and athleticism of Tennessee, where again, like you just you can't go up scared, you can't flip up the ball. And uh, because you're scared of the shot blocker that's coming, in fact, when a shot blocker is coming that you know is elite, you have to hold on to the ball longer. You need to get them in the air. You need to you need to initiate the contact. You need to bounce off, and then you need to make your finishing move. So it, it's funny. It's one of those like counterintuitive things. Again, it's like I, I know it's scary to go up against a really good shot blocker, really athletic, long dudes. But again, it's like your first instinct is going to be to flip that ball up as quickly as possible. And you've got, you've got to fight that urge and you've got to do the exact opposite. So, um, but Hey, we're, this is college basketball players that are, that are learning to be, to be high level finishers. And um, I, I've got to say, so that the offensive rebounding piece, uh, that was pretty huge for, for Tennessee. Um, I, I've got to shout out just like my new favorite thing. Um, uh, people, you know, listeners will know Bart Torvik, uh, an analytics site we we really really love. Uh, so he uh, he put I don't know if you've seen this Neil, but he made a Google Chrome extension. So you download the extension, and when you're in Google Chrome, if you go to ESPN's college basketball scores, it'll automatically give you tempo free stats. So when you go to the when you go to the score bug, like the ticker at the top, it doesn't just say like Tennessee sixty five, Florida fifty four. It says Tennessee, 1.2 points. Uh, yeah, 102.6 or 1.026 points per possession. And Florida, 0.85 points per possession and has effective field goal percentage and offensive rebound rate and turnover rate. So it's just all the like tempo free stats. Um, but uh, so I just think that's like the college basketball nerd dream. I would tell anyone to download that for free. I think it's incredible. But, anyways, I'm looking at it now and it's just uh, to see Tennessee. Um, they had a 47% offensive rebound rate. Uh, they got, so it's for them to get nearly nearly half of their misses. Uh, that's how you can go from it. You know, a team like Tennessee that that struggles offensively. Um, that's how they're able to put up points, and I think that's also something that allowed them to feel themselves pretty good. I mean, the energy of coming down with a contested offensive rebound in traffic and finishing through contact like that just that jacks everyone up. That gets everyone fired up, and Tennessee had a few of those, and uh, I think that that uh, that made them feel pretty good. That turned into uh, them just getting you know layups and, and effectiveness in, in other ways uh, that they're playing offense. Yeah. 23 rebounds to nine in the second half for the Vols. Uh, so just Ooh. absolute domination of Florida on the glass manhandles the manhandling the Gators on the glass. And like you said, I don't think it was necessarily an effort thing really. Um, but I do think when, and you know, this points to Trey Mann's absence a little bit as well. Like, Man has been such an effective rebounder for the Gators in the last month. Um, it, part of it is his size, just his ability to body people. But, you know, Alex Klatz, who did come in for Noah Locke, uh, I think it was because uh, Noah just didn't body up Keon Johnson on one of those offensive rebounds where Noah had really good position, should have gotten the rebound, didn't put his butt on uh, Keon Johnson, and Johnson was able to fly in and keep the possession alive. And that's what ultimately leads to another Tennessee make. Uh, you know, I thought that was a good substitution by Mike White. Honestly, would like to see him do some of those things a little more because there's not really ways – like I think effort is one of the most over-talked about things in the sport. Like my my hunch – maybe I'm totally wrong about this, but, I, you know, I feel like a lot of kids play really hard. So, you know, I think it's difficult to kind of gauge just how hard uh, people are playing unless you can see like object lessons in – in that situation. And that one, maybe it's not effort, but it's a combination of just effort and smarts and how they're coached to box out. Right. And if you don't do that, then we can teach you a lesson and put in somebody who's going to do it fundamentally strong. So I think, 
you know, putting in Alex Glatzky for a couple of minutes, while some people might be like, it's a do or die game. And this is kind of bizarre. Uh, I was okay with that. Um, but really that's what I would point to. Otherwise I thought sort of just some mystifying choices by Florida also offensively. Uh, they got really out of sorts, um, you know, uh, Eric. And, and so Tennessee was able to finally overcome the lead with about uh, 10 minutes to go. But something that I thought was interesting and, and it kind of made sense. This is kind of what I guessed in those brief moments where I kind of had my, had to wrap my head around what is Florida going to do without Trey Mann? They, they went to their Princeton offense in, in the first couple of minutes and uh, which kind of makes sense. It's something that you don't, a true point guard is something that's not quite as needed in that you play through Colin Castleton a little bit more. And then, uh, yeah, a little bit less of the ball screen offense that they, that Florida has been so used so much. So, so Florida did that pretty well. I, I thought they did a couple things pretty interesting. Like normally it's a, a guard passes to a guard and then, and then Colin Castleton, which set that chin screen, but they actually had like, uh, they actually had like Athy Jeruji setting chin screens for Colin Castleton. And then they had that easy pass over the top to Castleton. I thought it was a good kind of adjustment within the Princeton. So, so again, there, I, I was kind of settling in thinking, Oh, that's what Florida is going to do without their best pick and roll player uh, against a really good pick and roll defensive team. Uh, they're probably going to go away from the pick and roll. And uh, so, so Florida does the Princeton for a little while, but then you saw in the second half what happens with so many college basketball teams, so many basketball teams on the whole, and so many coaches on the whole is when things start to get a little bit rough, they go to what they're more, most comfortable with. So while Florida's offense was stagnating, they you could tell that they wanted to go to what they were most comfortable with, and that was – ball screen after ball screen. And um, unfortunately, uh, uh, unfortunately, especially without Trey Mann, that was a tough way to play basketball. And I think when you, when you look at the, uh, when you look at the run that really started to sink Florida, it was a lot of ball screens after ball screens, but instead of running it with a tremendous player in, in, in Trey Mann, it was some guys that aren't quite as good. And, and again, I actually thought, I thought Tennessee also made some incredible adjustments with their pick and roll defense. It's, it's, and again, this, this could come into like, like I thought Missouri just like, Quantico Martin just like coached a hell of a game with probably probably at least in some part due to how much time they had to prepare. Rick Barnes is another great schematic coach with a week to prepare. I thought it was incredible hearing on the live mics, hearing him call out every one of Florida's sets and calling out what they wanted to do defensively against it was um, really eye-opening. It was really awesome. And one of the things they did is when they knew that it was going to be a, a screen roll with, with Colin Castleton setting the screen, they would scram switch, which is like switch off the ball. So Eve Pond would switch onto Colin Castleton when Castleton was going to go set the screen. So then instead of having John Fulkerson guard as the, the screen defender in the pick and roll, it was suddenly Eve Ponds, who's athletic, can switch, uh, do whatever you want. And I thought that that was a really good adjustment. And then, of course, um, like like listening to Tom Thibodeau with the Bulls a couple years back um, with like Gorgie Jang. Uh, every time Florida tried to run the side ball screen, it was just like him screaming ice, 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 and trying to send those those screen and rolls by icing ball screens, sending them down towards the baseline and not letting them get into the middle of the floor. So, so I do think that it was a little bit of a mix of like teams have kind of figured out a little bit of how to guard Florida. I also think without Trey Mann going to pit, going to ball screen after ball screen is probably not a – great way to play and it was also just a, a matter of like when things got tough uh you know what this team was most comfortable with even if it wasn't necessarily the uh, the best offense to go to yeah and I thought even when Florida did a good job of getting inside and getting dribble penetration then they missed a bunch of open shots I mean Scotty Lewis missed a really wide open three uh with Florida down six uh that obviously you know cuts it to three and instead uh 
Eve Pons gets a basket in transition on the other end, and suddenly the balls are up eight. Um, that capped a 36 to 12 run for Tennessee uh, from the 16 minute mark uh, to where Tennessee had their eight point lead. Uh, Noah Locke had a wide open three off penetration, hits the side of the backboard. That's got to be a little concerning as the Gators get ready to go to Nashville. Um, usually Noah gets his feet set and at least in and outs that <laughs> that look. More often than not, it goes in. Noah Locke only uh, scored in double digits one of the last five games for the Gators. So I think kind of getting him going has to be something that is concerning. But certainly, as Eric and I have talked about, teams are defending Noah very differently this season. And uh, I think it's been productive. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, as Eric said, uh, just some really nice adjustments by Rick Barnes in Tennessee. I th- again, I thought the Volunteers played terrific in the second half. Like that's good Tennessee. And then Florida down uh, their best player, really their two best players, obviously uh, with Keontae, uh, just just not able to get it done. And ball screen after ball screen resulted in 0.57 points per possession uh, offensively for Florida in the second half. That's not going to get it done. But what I will say, because I had complimented Florida's defense, and, and I'll kick it back to you for thoughts on that in the second half. I didn't think Florida defended particularly poorly in the second half. They didn't defend on two feet as well as they did in the first half. And I thought Tennessee was able to get some dribble penetration as a result of that. Some of that was just that Victor Bailey finally made a couple shots, as we kind of predicted that he would. Um, but the Vols were at 0.81 points per possession in the second half on their first effort at scoring, Eric. Uh, they closed at 1.25 points per possession, a testament to their ability to dominate the glass. Yeah, a lot of Florida's kind of first shot defense was, was pretty good. and uh, But again, I, I think a lot of it, like people just see all those offensive rebounds. And then, you know, some people look at it and say like, oh, well, Florida got out hustled. They did not want it as much as Tennessee. I kind of look at it at, at again. There was some moments where uh, they got cross matched. Florida did, and and you're you're stuck with your guards boxing out bigger players. Um, you kind of got Florida in the mixer a little bit, rotating, scrambling. Uh, shot goes up, and uh, they don't look to turn and, and try to get a body. They they look up, and that was one thing that uh, uh, was pretty frustrating. I thought Anthony Deruji did this all game long was very frustrating for me is like the just just watch his eyes the as soon as the shot went up his eyes just went 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 straight up to the sky he's looking for the ball he's looking at the rim like your first instinct has to be to turn and look for a body the the ball's going to be someone shoots a three pointer the ball's going to be in the air long enough for you to identify your body then look and find the ball find the rim uh it's and again that's that's uh that that's a habit that's that's usually built in practice and something I'd like to see better from some of these older players. Like your first instinct when a shot goes up should not be to stand straight up and, and look skybound looking for the basketball and hoping it'll bounce to you. Like you, you've got to find a body like it's uh, uh, so just uh, I guess someone might look at that as an effort thing to me. That's just uh, that, that, that is where like focus plays a role. And, and again, maybe that's just that that's an accountability thing because uh, you could do that for, for 10 times and uh 
by not finding a body and the ball might still find you when you're a player who's long and athletic, but then another game um, it's not going to find you and, and Tennessee is going to offensive rebound half of their misses. So uh, again, I wouldn't say I actually had like any, you know, huge problems with the way that, that Florida de- defended. I, I thought that uh, Tennessee, the fact that uh, the fact that Tennessee doesn't run a lot of ball screens uh, relatively speaking, I thought that that definitely plays into Florida's favor because that's kind of the the weakest point of Florida's defense is is guarding guarding these these ball screens. So, uh, so yeah, I, I yeah, no 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 big issues with uh, with the way Florida defended today. Truthfully, it was just a lot of like once you're in rotation, you just got to be able to find bodies when shots come up, and you've got to train yourself. And the coaching staff has to train their players that shots go up. You've got to train their eyes to to look for bodies, not not look at the ball. Yeah, no. Uh- pretty much on the same page with you. Just some of it, like we were talking about, just execution on the glass too. You know, it's not always an effort thing. Uh, there's an element of luck involved, but I didn't think it was as much about that today. It was about losing execution battles for position. Um, if you want to call that effort, then okay. I don't really think that that's what it is. Like I said, I my experience with high school players is that they want to win. I can't imagine that college players – uh, are any different. So it's hard for me to gauge that uh, effort discussion. Um, you know, what I did like about Tennessee is that they seem to feed off their ability to rebound and play defense. And, you know, that, I think that's what really good teams do in March. Right now, Florida's 0-2 in March. So, uh, you know, um, will the Gators finish strong? We'll see. You know, they don't get as much time off now. They'll have to play Thursday in Nashville. Uh, they'll play in the second game. They do have the small advantage that the fifth seed gets, which is that they play somebody who's played on Wednesday. Uh, but I always feel like to some extent with a team that played on Wednesday, that can be good or bad because that team is always playing for their season. And, you know, they're going to have come off a win, so they're going to be a little confident from that. Uh, Florida will either have to beat Vanderbilt a third time, which I think is difficult, although we don't know what Dylan DeSue's COVID protocol status is um, with, with the Commodores. We do know that Scotty Pippen jr. Uh, is back. Vanderbilt looked terrific in routing Cincinnati and then didn't show up to play all miss. So, uh, you know, who knows which version of Jerry Stackhouse's team we'll get. Um, if Florida does not play them, they would play Texas and America. Yeah, that's uh, we'll we'll see how much of a see how much of an advantage it is. Definitely, I mean, uh, I'll just be very interested to see what one of those teams are, uh, what they're uh, what they're kind of playing for, um, what uh, what kind of motivation they have. I mean, the only player that like like even again, I don't know if what's Scotty Pippen's plan is. Uh, maybe he decides he's not interested in playing this last game if he decides he wants to go pro. I mean, uh, we'll see, but. Uh, uh, hey, I mean, I, I look at Texas A&M and like, obviously that is a team that is not very good and has caught some losses to some pretty bad teams this year. I also look at Texas A&M as a team that offensive rebounds the ball really well and also turns de- turns teams over a whole bunch. So could I see a situation where Florida plays them and turns the ball over 16 times again and gives up 18 offensive rebounds? Uh, maybe. And then that would uh, that would start to get get pretty scary. So uh yeah, we'll we'll see. But again, I shouldn't uh, shouldn't try to predict who who Florida is going to play because I was uh, I was pretty wrong on that front last year when we were trying to decide who uh, who we thought Florida was going to play in that first game. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, AM certainly struggles to score mightily. Um, 175th in the country and Kim Pom offense. Uh, it's not where you want to be. Eric and I, I think talked about them before the season, and, and I think we thought that, you know, Buzz Williams is still sort of building that roster. Uh, but, but at least to me, like Savion Flag and Emmanuel Miller are the only kind of like players who could be like all league caliber players that they have. Um, and, you know, we've been saying that about Savion Flag for three years and he kind of hasn't blossomed into that guy that we thought he was. I thought Buzz Williams, and he was the SEC coach of the year last year. Nobody remembers that because the COVID canceled the tournaments and I think we kind of forgot about it. But they had gone 10-8 and eight last season in the conference in his first year by finishing strong. They weren't really given that opportunity this season because of COVID. Um, you know, they're one month of not playing basketball. But when they did come back out to play this week, they played a tight game with Mississippi State um, and lost. And then they played a tight game with the hottest team in the country in Arkansas other than Gonzaga and uh, lost. Um, but both those games were close. And I, I agree with you. Like, they can turn people over. They muck the game up. Um it's just kind of the type of team that's given Florida some issues. Yeah. I, I you even look at, uh, look at last year. I thought that it was like, ultimately the final score was, was a little bit crooked. I don't remember what exactly what it was, but, uh, but they played Florida pretty tough for a game that we, we thought that was uh, going to be a, a runaway win for the Gators. It was, it was tight at half if I remember. And uh, I, I really think Buzz Williams is going to get it going there. I, I think he is a tremendous, tremendous basketball coach and they, ha- and he has, the other thing that I, you know, it, it, I, I want to say we don't talk about it enough, but that's not really fair because like covering the exact, like trying to quantify what assistant coaches do is very, very difficult. Um, but uh, I, I know some of the coaches in that program and they are, they, they do j- their jobs very, very well, especially from a scouting and analytics um, standpoint, which of course is something that matters a lot to me. And again, if you look at their staff, like it reads like a football staff, they have multiple, they've got analysts, they have multiple scouts, they have analytics guys. Uh, they get the most out of their guys right now. They just have inherited a team that is not very talented and are slowly changing it out. But uh, I, I love Buzz Williams. I think he has a fantastic coaching staff around him and I think you can get players there. So, so I think they're going to be very good, but in the short term, uh, man, we've seen a bunch of teams in a row that came very prepared to play Florida and very prepared to capitalize on, on Florida's deficiencies. Of course, that was a little bit of Missouri and Tennessee being well, good basketball teams to start with. And also with, with long periods to prepare for Florida. Well, Texas A&M doesn't have the time to prepare, but uh, man, they've got the staff to prepare. And it just wouldn't shock me at all if, uh, if, if that was the team that Florida played, if it ended up being uh, being an uncomfortable one that uh, we're in the second half, kind of just like biting our nails a little bit. Yeah, it was 37-34 um, Florida at halftime in that game last year in College Station. Uh, and it really wasn't until the last 10 minutes when Florida got a control of it. Uh, Emmanuel Miller... Uh, who I really like um, is is a kind of freakishly bouncy six seven wing and had 19 against Florida played really well against the Gators last year so uh, I'm still I'm not really sure that and that of course was a Florida team that had Keontae Johnson on the floor I'm not really sure that Florida has great matchups for for either him or uh, Savion Flag who at six seven 225 is more of a, a linebacker type 
uh, build. And, and I'm sure that the Aggies are going to want to get downhill against the Gators as much as possible if it is the Aggies because, uh, you know, they're not a team that, that shoots the ball particularly well. They're 315th in the country in three-point percentage. So that will be interesting. I, I, you know, Florida probably would choose to, to pack the ball in, I think, again, and, and hope to make Texas A&M take outside jump shots, which they're not particularly comfortable with with doing one thing I would point out is that to Eric's point about how they can turn people over, um, they uh, do commit their own fair share of turnovers offensively, but that's, they muck the game up 324th in the country in turnover percentage. So not real good at taking care of the ball, but 14th in the country invest in the sec and turning the opponent over even better than Alabama in that category. So, you know, I could see a scenario where this is just a, a really ugly game if the Gators draw the Aggies. And, um, uh, you know, then it just comes down to does Texas A&M tire in the second half playing their second game in 40 minutes? And then as our buddy Malik Grady pointed out, uh, Eric, on uh, Twitter earlier today, you know, how is how is Florida? Like, Noah Locke hasn't looked great the last couple games. Trey Mann's going to be coming off migraines. Uh, you never know how much that can linger. You've got Collins' ankle. I would dare say that Osayo Sifo's ankle is not great. Um, I did get word uh, from uh, some sources today, uh, this morning, Eric, that uh, Niles Lane uh, has had an ankle injury since the win over Tennessee. Um, so in case anybody was wondering what was going on there, he's been practicing and trying to play through it, but – um, you know, so that's one depth piece that has been kind of lost. And then Tyree Appleby, uh, I thought was terrific today against Tennessee. Mike White lauded his play. Eric Fawcett has lauded his play. Uh, but he did take a big John Fulkerson knee to the thigh that's probably going to leave a mark. So, yeah, John Fulkerson setting those like sideways screens leading with his shoulder. And the I, I was very surprised that he got away with, with a couple of those. How is that, that not was, a foul? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, in the half court, if you did that, that that's a foul 100 times out of 100. Like, just I, I was just surprised that – yeah, I was, I was surprised he got away. The, the one where the one where he uh, the one where he clipped uh, Tyree Apley, that wasn't quite as bad. I forget who ran into that screen earlier, if it was Quez Glover or whatever. But, but he was, like, straight sideways. Like, he didn't even try to set a screen. He just lowered his shoulder, and I, just, I was in awe of it. But, uh, yeah, well, well <laughs> it was, I, I, I was I – was, I was, I was hoping. I was going to say I was hoping. I'll, I'll use the term. I was not hoping that Niles Lane had an injury. But again, with all due respect, <laughs> Alex Klatsky, if Mike White is trying to make a point by putting in, you know, maybe that's maybe you need a walk on to really make your point in that scenario with uh, with players not boxing out or whatever. But I would have uh, would have maybe liked to have seen Niles Lane in that situation. But I have heard he's practicing and looking pretty good. So Niles Lane is so maybe maybe he would be able to get on some extra tape and and get in if uh, if needed. But uh, Hey, talk, actually, I want to talk one one thing really quick. So I, I, I am closely monitoring Tyree Appleby's and Anthony DeRuji's, uh statistical output to try to see how close my predictions were preseason um, when I tried to predict what numbers they put up for, for Florida. Midseason, they were looking pretty good. I talked about it on the podcast and uh, uh, tweeted about it that my predictions are looking pretty good for what I said they were going to, to bring with Florida. And I also want to say one player who Florida reached out to that I had zero interest in them getting and ultimately i don't know how much interest florida's coaching staff really did was uh quinnipiac's uh, kevin marfo who ended up going to uh, texas a&m um i did not think he is was good 
whatsoever, quite frankly. And uh, yeah. Yeah, he's been at about like 11 or 12 minutes per game for Texas A&M. So I am, uh, while I am taking a slight victory lap, um, I, I, I do I do think that uh, it was good that Florida passed on on him. And uh, again, coming into a coming into a summer where uh, Florida, I think, is going to be extremely active on the transfer market. I am going to be uh, doing what I can to uh, to make some predictions here about uh, who they should take and who they who they shouldn't, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, looking at Kevin Marfo hardly getting on the floor for a very bad Texas A&M team. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad that that Florida steered clear of that one. Yeah, no, and it's surprising because it's not like. Uh... It's not like the, the Aggies have been uh, too good in the front court. I mean, Jonathan AQ has, has also not played as much as many people thought that, that he would play after a four-star kid out of high school that has, has you know, you could make the argument that, uh, you know, the reason – we were told the reason he didn't play last year was because Josh Nebo kind of had this breakthrough season for, for Buzz Williams, but uh, the minutes have actually – kind of leveled off it hasn't really improved um which i think is a little bit surprising to to some in aggie land and then um you know marfa was a guy who you would have thought maybe it could help them uh, a little bit offensively but that hasn't been the case either uh eric their backcourt just really really struggles uh to score i don't know if some of that is that you know one of their the guy that takes their most three pointers is JJ Chandler, who probably is not a guy you want to take your most three pointers. He shoots twenty six percent out there, uh, which reminds me of our last podcast where Eric was talking about uh, how often you would want to run plays for a guy that shoots twenty six percent beyond the arc. Yeah. <laughs> and now uh, Florida may be down staring down the barrel of uh, JJ Sanders, but yeah, I mean it's just as they look to rebuild that off that uh, roster, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do from a scoring standpoint and from a transfer portal standpoint in college station, especially with, uh, with three seniors uh, headed to Nashville for the Aggies, unlike the skaters team, which will go to Nashville with no seniors. Yeah. Uh, Texas A&M has a five-star. I, I, I think um, I don't really know anything about them, but I just remember when it was news that they got a five star. I think they've got uh, four, they've got a four star, maybe two four stars, and they got a JUCO player that um, everyone is talking about in, in Texas. So uh, we'll we'll see what they do uh, around those guys and and uh, again the transfer. But again, if I'm like South Alabama, I am uh, I'm, I'm watching the Texas I'm watching Texas A&M closely because uh, there's probably some of those guys that I think I can get or like if I'm <laughs> if I'm if I'm Eddie Shannon at Chattanooga I'm trying to yeah. I'm trying to get it so so uh, yeah there, there's just some players that I just don't think are SEC caliber but uh, uh, yeah let's uh, if we if we want to talk uh, if we want to talk uh, uh, SEC caliber or not do we want to do we want to circle back and talk uh, Quez Glover's games uh, his performance at all today do you have any takes on on what he did do you think he was just Put in a tough spot, or, or what, what? What was your read on Glover today? Well, I mean, I think we do need to talk about it in the sense that you know he's back in his hometown, and traditionally, the uh, Florida has a long history of players who go back to where they're from and light the universe on fire. Um, and it's not just Kalon Allen, which I'm sure is the guy that comes to everybody's mind. It's like if Florida was in Fayetteville and Kalon Allen was with them on the airplane, he was going to drop. 25 points and actually look aggressive with the basketball. Right. Uh, but except, sorry, Kayvon, if you're listening, I'm not trying to throw shade, man. Just shoot, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like Mike Rosario, like Billy Donovan was, 
a big believer in, in scheduling games um, where his kids were from. And I like that Mike White has continued to do that, by the way. But, like, Florida would go and play in New York, and Mike Rosario would be good for, like, 30. Like, it just, you know, it did not matter. So, like, I guess I kind of hoped, okay, Quest Clover back in Knoxville. Tennessee didn't really recruit him until Florida offered, and then all of a sudden Tennessee was like, hey, come play for us. Um, you know, not good. Uh, and the thing about Quez is that he's shown to me, I think, Eric, that he can be a, an impactful defender uh, in, in, in college basketball. But I don't think that that's what Florida saw when they evaluated him and, and offered him a scholarship ultimately. And I think it's the score that they saw uh, that we haven't seen. And I don't know, Eric, if some of that is that he's so clearly not a point guard at this point, and he so clearly needs another primary ball handling guard to thrive, or if it's that he's just not of this level and, and might be better off at a mid-major program. Yeah, I mean, uh, I said earlier in the season that that Quez Glover isn't a point guard, and I had like um, maybe I shouldn't stereotype, but I had a lot of blue check marks from the state of Florida that were, you know, maybe like radio people or like local news station kind of people. I didn't really know who they were, but there were blue check marks, and there was a whole lot of them that that saw, you know, some Canadian saying that the five ten guy wasn't a point guard, and that that I was an idiot. But uh, I I stand by my take. I just I don't think he's a point guard. Um, if it, other than the fact that he is short and therefore you would stereotype that player as a point guard, he doesn't possess any qualities that you want your point guard to have. So, and again, I'm not even, I, I truly don't even mean that to be that negative. It's just the, the fact of the matter. It would be like force feed. It would be like trying to make Noah Locke a point guard. It's just, if he does not have those, those talents, uh, you're just trying to force him into into a role that that doesn't fit. So for for Glover, who does not have the handle to get around ball screens, uh, he doesn't have the vision to probe. He doesn't have the passing ability to hit windows. He just does not have point guard abilities right now. And I don't even think he's particularly shown flashes of it. Um, I I really think if he is going to be um, like I think you've got to look at like uh, I I don't know if some people will know the name Neil you probably will the you know what like Marquette um, there was Marcus Howard which would be the the kind of natural one obviously he was he was awesome but he played next to a guy uh, uh, named Andrew Rousey and he was like a five ten shooting guard like and uh, and that's it was just like the most fun. Uh, backcourt ever with him and uh, and younger Marcus Howard, but that's what Andrew Rousey was. He was a five ten guy who played off the ball, and he was like a pure scorer. And that's something that that I just really feel like if, if Quez Glover is is going to be a high major basketball player, he cannot be the guy you give to 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 try to initiate stuff, to try to distribute the ball. He needs to be a scorer. And in and in high school, he was an incredible shooter uh, off the bounce. He was someone who was a really good scorer. I, I, I so so somewhere that that skill is there, whether or not it's at a the high major level um who knows but uh but yeah i just i i just truly don't think he's a point guard and and putting him in those positions uh is not really good for for florida and it's not really good for uh not really good for him uh, truthfully i don't think that, i don't think him turning the ball over five times on however few minutes he played uh today i i don't think that was the best for him so so again like that's that's a situation where um like we'll see, I guess. Like it's like you alluded to, Neil. Maybe Niles Lane wasn't really ready to go, but I think he would have offered some of that uh, some of that secondary ball handling. Not like you want him just initiating a bunch of a bunch of ball screens. But again, it's like if you have Quez Glover in the game, that would have been a great time to go to the Princeton offense and to try to keep the ball out of the position where he has got to make tough reads. I just, uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, it, 
it, I, and I don't think it's overreacting. This is something I've said since since last year, and his turnover problems have been something that have persisted since last year. But uh, yeah, I'm really really cheering for the guy. But uh, but I think he needs a rebrand. Yeah, no, I, I look, I agree. I, you know, and I was hoping that maybe today we just saw a game where uh, you know Villanova lost, but uh, um, I thought that they went with. Justin Moore at point guard, right, with Gillespie hurt. And then, um, I mean, talk about some bad luck. Justin Moore gets hurt, but uh, Chris Archidiakono came in and I thought really gave them a spark, right, and, like, got them in their actions. And, and sure, like, he missed all his shots, but uh, he had four assists. He had a couple steals. Like, he played pretty well to the point where Jay Wright was like, you know, uh, we have to move forward without Colin and uh, Colin Gillespie. Like we have to do what we've got to do, but we're excited to see that, you know, I think that they kind of were like, Whoa, we, we might actually be okay. At least temporarily, if he can give us these quality minutes and quest Glover is just not that guy. Uh, he's not going to be a guy that can get Florida into sets and that, you know, when Florida didn't have Tyree Appleby on the floor today, they were in dire straits. Yeah, and, and uh, you did mention something earlier as well that that Quez Glover has shown some really good minutes as a as a defender. Um, but the problem is, yeah, he's just someone that's uh, there's just not a lot of matchups for him out there, especially if he's going to be someone who can't be your 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 lead ball handler. Have him in a position where he's got to be away from the ball offensively, but then guard some smaller yeah. players uh, defensively. It's 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 a little tough. And again, I don't want to. I'm not trying to maybe suggest that that Florida pushes him out or anything. But if you want to talk supply and demand in, in college basketball that the fact of the matter is is point guard is the easiest position to, to go and get a guy uh the just nature of the the of the human race is that there's more people in the uh 511 to 63 range that are that play basketball and are going to gravitate towards the guard position then there are seven footers and you see that when any time a true center goes on the transfer market everyone's trying to get that guy there's just so many guards out there in the world in junior college in division two in canada in europe uh it's just uh it's it's tough to have have around guys that, that you can't be be totally sure um can't be totally sure are going to make it happen. So, so we'll, we'll see. But uh, again, I just think uh, the, maybe the, the team needs to be a little bit more mindful of, of how they use Quez Glover when, when he's in the game. And uh, it's, it's probably shouldn't be as a, as a primary point guard, primary ball handler running all these pick and rolls. And I think the other question, Eric, is, you know, as they look to, to reassemble this team next season, you know, we have talked consistently on this show about when you evaluate your roster, you have to have a way that you want to play in mind and what that player's role is for how you want to play. And for me, that the big question with Quest Glover is where does he fit into that? Um, like, is is Mike White going to have a guy that, like, if Mike White thinks he has a way to play with a 5'10 off-ball guard who can score and provide some some spark on defense – and you can use him for 10 to 12 minutes a night. Great. But if not, you know, then you're better off going and finding somebody that fits what you want to be and what you uh, conceptualize yourself wanting to do. Aren't you? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think Quez Glover might benefit from that as well. And I think there would be uh, there'd be a good number of programs that, that uh, would be happy to have him, I think. So uh, certainly um, certainly ones that would be better than the uh, the couple of low majors that had some passing interest in him before before Florida offered. So, so yeah, it's it's probably it's going to be time for a good, honest decision between uh, between Quez and, and the coaching staff and and. Uh, whatever's best best for both of them but uh that'll be the case for probably a couple of players but uh yeah we don't want to jump that jump the gun on our offseason kind of podcast but it's going to be a it's going to be a wild one with the transfers both uh for players that are currently on Florida's roster and the players that Florida's going to try to get but uh yeah those will be those will be crazy podcasts yeah no I mean we, we've got a lot to get into there we had a, a couple different listener questions Sarah and Tampa emailed uh it's been a while since we got one from her and uh, she asked if there was a player on Texas A&M that scares you because she knows that Scottie Pippen scares you plenty from Vanderbilt. Is <laughs> mad. Sarah from Tampa keeps the great questions going. I still want to know. I, I still have my my listener question for Sarah from Tampa. I want to know how she uh, how she heard of the podcast because, of course, so many of our friends here that listen are uh, are from Twitter or from Gator Country or from Saturday Down South. So I'm just interested where Sarah from Tampa fits in the mix. But but Neil, I think you pretty much nailed it. I would say um, with Emmanuel Miller. I just think yeah. he is. Uh, I, I think he's pretty, pretty clearly the guy that that scares me. Both from like, a, like obviously it's like, well, he's their their best. Their, I would say their best player. So he's obviously going to have a little bit of the the concern. But then I also just think about uh, about matchup wise, like who does kind of Florida have to to hang with him? Um, I, again, I think athletically, uh, Anthony Derugia is, is kind of somewhere in that that range. But I do think that Emmanuel Miller, even though like he's not listed as like super heavy or anything like that um i i think he can be a little bit i think he's a little bit stronger than than Deruji. and again we just saw eve ponds just like as much as he's explosive he also just like back Deruji down turned his shoulder drop step and laid it in over him and and emmanuel miller has a little bit of that to his game so so he'd be my guy and uh yeah i'm gonna guess i guess it's the same as as you because you already uh you already mentioned him neil yeah no he is definitely my guy the uh i think he's a an excellent player an explosive uh Canadian, you know, the Canadian invasion of college basketball continues. And it's not just Eric Fawcett on the uh, <laughs> on the Florida Basketball Hour pod. But, yeah, I would go with him. Um, I actually really like Andre Gordon, too, although I don't think that he shoots the ball uh, enough. Like He's a 33% shooter from um, outside. Uh, and But, you know, you'd think – with a, a guy that has the third highest offensive uh, efficiency rating on the basketball team would shoot the ball a little more than he does, but uh, he does not. He's only at 23.3% uh, on the shot percentage on Kim Palm. That's, that's uh, fourth on the team. So you'd think maybe, you know, he would be a little more aggressive. I'm not sure that that's necessarily what Buzz Williams asked him to do, but I think he's a guy that can get hot. Uh, yeah, I guess that. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I mean, I guess like Savion Flag has a little bit of that. Like, yeah. can get hot, but is like a sub thirty percent three point shooter. So, uh, yeah. yeah, Manuel Miller definitely the guy that I that I, I enjoy watching right. him play. I think he's a great player, and um, yeah, he's the one that uh, that concerns me. Uh, another question we had was from Evergreen Gator One. I thought this was a really good one that we should ask on air, and he says. <clears throat> he says, excuse me, you guys are great. I enjoy your podcast. Uh, I think being in the coaching profession gives you good perspective on how things can and do go wrong. And clearly the Gators have been snake bit during the white era. My question is theoretical. 
if the Gators had the same recruiting profile over the past five seasons, but had an objectively poor coaching staff, uh, what would be a difference uh, with Florida record wise? <laughs> wow. What a question. Uh, I mean, job, hmm. right? yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I think the first thing that, uh, that comes to mind and, and again, we don't know exactly how, uh, how things would have shaken down, but like look at Arizona last year who had three NBA players on their roster and, and weren't very good. Um, and, and again, that's just interesting because I think Sean Miller is a, a really good coach. I mean, he's got a very good reputation. Um, another one of the, uh, you know, the pack line disciples, really good defensive coach. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you look at the, you look at Arizona these last couple of years and they've had really talented players, uh, maybe not quite as talented as they're used to with the, with the FBI probe. Um, but yeah, they were, they were missing, missing NCAA tournaments and, and losing out quick in the, the PAC 12 tournament and, and being largely, largely relevant in the PAC 12. So, um, so I mean, it's I mean I could maybe crunch the numbers and do an exact calculation, but um, I just uh, let's just look look for example Arizona the last couple of years just to show that um, yeah you can have very 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 good players and even be you know what what most people would call objectively a good coach in Sean Miller and still not have it come together and, and end up uh, end up losing out going one and done in your conference tournament in a bad conference such as Pac-12 and uh, missing the NCAA tournament. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's hard to argue with that stuff. Uh, look at Auburn this season. I mean, I think Justin Powell uh, and Sharif Cooper are, are probably both likely to be NBA draft picks. I don't know. I don't think – I guess I don't have enough confidence in Cooper as a lottery pick yet to say that they have uh, multiple future lottery picks. But I think, you know, certainly between those two guys and a guy Eric uh, Fawcett likes a lot and Alan Flanagan yeah. – uh, really good basketball players. Right. And no one's going to argue about Bruce Pearl as a, as a coach and they're 13 and 14 um, and their season's over. Yeah. Well, and uh, Memphis, um, Memphis under Penny Hardaway these last couple of years, uh, you know, like maybe they find a way into the dance this year, but like by the skin of their teeth. So uh, yeah, just, just some programs that uh, of an example that, and again, do those, do those teams referenced have, the exact re- recruiting profile is Florida. Like, no, it's, it'd be tough to have the exact same recruiting profile. Um, but uh, just kind of like, we'll say, you know, <laughs> really good recruiting classes, uh, a few five-star guys. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it is very, it is possible to have multiple of those guys and, and uh, do worse than, than Florida has done the last couple of years. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, uh, another program that uh, per the 24 seven composite has a pretty similar recruiting profile to Florida. Uh, there aren't, mcdonald's all americans in the group but there are players of the four-star variety is wisconsin um and if you look at wisconsin uh for the last four seasons you have one year where they have a 15 and 18 record and don't make the ncaa tournament um and then quite honestly you have some similar stuff to florida eric you have a, a, a pretty darn good uh 23 and 11 team uh but one that got blown out by oregon in the first round uh, in that game that was so weird because uh, nobody really thought anybody from the conference of champions was going to win a game. And, and uh, you know, big money, Dana, wink, wink, uh, got it done. Um, and then well, I think Wisconsin was about like Florida last year too, before the COVID hit. Yeah. In fact, they were, uh, they were 21 and 10. Now the thing about Wisconsin last year is that they had, they started 11 and 10 and had rattled off 10 wins in a row, Eric. And uh, then COVID canceled the season. So Greg Gard, I mean, Ro- Rothstein doesn't even tweet about Mike White anymore, but Greg Gard gets his own like 
phrase and t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some people that definitely pander to the like, uh, I was going to say some names of media members. I, I will refrain other than John Rothstein. There are definitely some coaches that really pander to certain personalities in the sport. I, I don't know if Florida has one of them, but I'm going to guess no. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's going to be the case. But and, and you know what? Like talking recruiting profiles, with, with all due respect to these players who I, you know, really, really do love. But, you know, 2019 was, I, I think, I think a weak recruiting year generally. You just look at um, – looking at some of those, those players in that class. And, and again, like, I, I don't think that Scotty Lewis, and again, like with all due respect to him, I don't know if Scotty Lewis and Trey Mann are, are McDonald's all Americans, if they were 2018 kids instead of 2019 kids, like if they just like happened to be born a, a year earlier or, or a year later, like the 2018 and the 2020 years were, were a lot, a lot better, just, just better years for, for basketball talent. It's just that that's just what's going to happen year to year. There's just, there it's, it's not like there's the identical amount of talent getting churned out every year. So, so again, like, I, and that conversation will happen. There's people right or already is happening. People are looking at Scotty Lewis and being like, wow, the fact he wasn't one and done is such an indictment on the staff. It's like, I don't think you can just look at, Oh, this was a five star. He should be gone after one year. Like, it's it's just not that consistent. Yes, there are going to be years where every five star is going to be one and done, and then there's going to be years like 2019 where that's just not the case at all. And I, I think you look at some of the five stars, and a bunch of them are likely going to be you know three or four year guys. So it's just the nature of the beast, and and that's also why it is a little bit tough to to compare recruiting profiles just because it's just not one for one of like getting the seventh ranked player in one year is not can, can be wildly different than the seventh ranked uh, kid even even like one year one year later yeah i think one that probably really needs to be brought up though and jason horowitz at sirius xm brought it up this week and i thought it was a really good one was vanderbilt um just because they've had three nba draft picks in the last two nba drafts plus some too who uh, is is a G League warrior uh, for the Knicks right now, um, and and so I think when you look at those four guys, and you look at a team that's won three league games or that entered the season with uh, three victories in SEC play over the last two seasons, uh, and they're a team that lost a preseason All American uh, after four games. Which, hmm. uh, if you uh, go back and look at Keontae Johnson. Uh, it's the same deal. So they were three and one uh, when their player went out. Florida was unbeaten with an asterisk. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, is that a fair comparison? I, if you're strictly looking at recruiting profile, it, it is. I think. Yeah, that's fair. I didn't. I yeah, it's kind of forgot about uh, forgot about that with Vanderbilt. So yeah, that's a, that that that's fair. I'm glad you looked at the the similar ones on on twenty four seven there. Sorry about the uh, background noise in my ears. I don't know if that got to everybody else, but um, okay. That was very strange. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of where that is. And those are a couple of the listener questions that we wanted to get into before uh, we talked about our all league team, uh, which this was fun. You know, I, I told everybody early in the season that had been listening that I had filled out for the second straight year, our all SEC media ballot in the preseason. Um, and so I, I got a couple of DMs like, man, like it's Florida basketball hour. You got to get Eric in on those things. <laughs> and I was like, well, I always take Eric's thoughts into account when filling out the league. And they're like, yeah, but do you send him ask for his input? And I was like, no. And then I felt bad about it. 
So, Eric, we, we did our uh, all-SEC team, and, and why don't you talk about our first team, which is uh, it turned out uh, Cameron Thomas, the guard at LSU, Herb Jones from Alabama, forward Moses Moody, uh, guard from Arkansas, Scotty Pippen Jr., guard from Vanderbilt, and Jeremiah Tillman at center. I think the first thing that uh, just kind of comes across is just how much, uh, probably how much more talent there is in the backcourt than there is in in, uh, in the frontcourt. <laughs> uh, no, and again, no dis, don't, no disrespect to uh, you know to Herb Jones and, uh, uh, and and Jeremiah Tillman, who I obviously think are fantastic players on our first team. Um, but yeah, I just think you look at like like Cam Thomas and 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 Scotty Pippen, just like the ability to the ability to score at such a high level, and and something that's incredible about Cameron Thomas. I know that LSU maybe has been. A little up and down, and, and dropped a couple of games that um, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't expect them to, and maybe think that they're inconsistent. But man, it's like when you look at Cam Thomas's scoring output, he's just like 25, 25, 21, 25, 27, 25. Mm-hmm. Like it's incredible. He's just like clockwork. Like very, very, very consistent score. Um, I think he's he's fantastic. And then uh, something I do love about your and my votes, um, Neil, that uh, I, I'm curious to see what other voters do, but. Um, I think the I think that you and me really showed a respect that for the fact that the game of basketball is played on on both sides of the court in in putting Herb Jones on our first team. Uh, I mean his his offensive numbers are, are are okay. He definitely contributes positively on that side. Um, but uh, you know his his inclusion on the first team is just all about um, being uh, you know who we think is the best defensive player in the league and uh, for. A, uh, an Alabama team that is so good defensively. So, so I do love that we, uh, we showed some, uh, showed some respect that defense is, is half the game. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the, uh, the approach I think to, uh, to our first team there. Yeah. And um, just so folks know, we have picked Cameron Thomas as our player of the year and Herb Jones as our defensive player of the year. Our second team has two Gators. Um, so we'll let Eric talk about that group as well. But uh, by the way, the way we did this was just, we both made a first and second team and I gave two points to every player that made the first team on any, on either ballot and one point to anyone that made the second team. And then we just aggregated it. It was very simple. And we broke a couple of ties through text messages, real scientific. Um, the second team though, Trey man uh, guard, Florida, uh, Drew Smith guard, Missouri, Savir Wheeler guard, Georgia, Trenton Watford forward LSU, Colin Castleton center Florida. So your thoughts on the second team. And I do think Drew Smith also speaks to basketball being played on both ends. Yeah, I think so. And, and again, just a little bit of a little bit of a, something a little past the, uh, the, the box scores. I mean, yeah, Drew Smith has some nice numbers. There's, there's no question, but I, I do think that you've just got it. You've got to be watching those Missouri games to really know the full, the full impact he has. I mean, I'm someone who just uh, like, it's just crazy. Like I don't remember the exact numbers, but like severe wheelers at like over seven assists per game. And I think who is second in the sec is it was at like 4.9. And that was Scotty Pippen. Who's like second in scoring and second in assists. So incredible for Scotty Pippen, but yeah, like Wheeler for his ability to like lap everyone on the assist count. Um, I think that that's pretty incredible for a player that doesn't play with much talent. So I'm a huge fan of his game and, and Trenton Watford, another guy who's just uh, just awfully, awfully productive and uh, uh, his ability to score and, and, and capitalize on on mismatches and be just really one of the one of the preemptive primitive like power forward bigs in the league just over overpowering guys um i think uh, i think lsu really does did deserve to have two guys on on these teams and then um yeah i mean no no homerism here with uh, with trey Mann and colin castleton like trey man's numbers for for scoring and and shot creation with his assists are 
right up there among among the best. Um, uh, I think defensively, he's he's right there with a lot of the guards. Maybe not in the the top tier, but uh, but right there in the second tier. And and uh, Colin Castleton again. When you look at centers in the league, uh, Castleton is 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 up at the top when it comes to points, uh, leading the way in in a lot of the uh, the shot blocking categories. And uh, uh, that's definitely a, a deserved place for him on the on the second team. I think. Yeah, and I think you get into this uh, this second team discussion and some guys that have come up uh, in on other broadcasts and on other Twitter feeds, Tolu Smith, uh, Darius Days. Like, I just don't think uh, any of those guys are quite as complete as, as Colin Castleton is. Uh, so for me, you know, like looking at Darius Days, who's a very good rebounder, and, and I think uh, certainly is a glue guy for LSU to the extent that a team that defends as poorly as LSU does has a glue guy. But I also think Wani Wilkinson has kind of become that. Uh, and his, uh, his field goal percentage is like 95% too, which is like my favorite stat in college basketball right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, like Colin Castleton is just a guy that impacts winning a little more than Darius days. And, and I would say the same thing about uh, Tolu Smith, who's just one piece of a really good front court in this state. So those are kind of, what I would add to what, what Eric is saying. Severe Wheeler also really impresses me even more. There's a little bit of Nick Calathis to it uh, for you Gator listeners, because like he's not really surrounded by great pieces. Uh, and, I, and I always thought like the funny thing is like Billy had these huge recruiting classes at Florida after he won the national title. But those first two years of those guys being super young, were rough. And uh, Nick Calathis oftentimes seemed like, you know, if it weren't for him creating, like those would not have been NIT teams for Florida. They would have been teams with losing records. And I mean, Severe Wheeler and Georgia appear appear to be a team that if they can win a game in Nashville are going to get a good hard look for an NIT berth. Um, and I don't think that Georgia would be anywhere close to an NIT team without Severe Wheeler. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, he's, he's he's definitely a player that I that I love, and and I think another another player that like just maybe didn't play enough games to be to be eligible is of course Sharif Cooper, which is a tough one. I mean, he's someone that that you know you had to think long and hard about because I think again, if yeah. like there was a book to be written on the this year in the SEC, like there would need to be a chapter on on Sharif Cooper. Like he just had such a big impact when he did play, but uh, yeah, unfortunately injuries were were tough for him and. Uh, uh, yeah, that was rough, but but Neil, definitely thank you for allowing me. I'm sorry you had to get cyberbullied into doing so, but uh, I, I thank you for uh, for letting me be part of the the process. It's uh, pretty pretty cool, uh, pretty cool to be able to to be a part of it and, and help out with the votes. And uh, it was a, a fun fun task to do as well. So thank you. Well, no problem. I definitely deserve to be cyberbullied uh, <laughs> into making sure that one half of Florida Basketball Hour was also participating in. In these things. So let's see. Uh, I think we both can say Nate Oates is the SEC coach of the year. Um, we actually didn't do that one, but I'm, I felt confident enough that I think we can write that one down into our thing unless you want to argue with me about it on air here. Let's see if I can. Mm, I, I, I don't even know. I was trying, I was just quickly scanning to see if I could like make an interesting argument for anyone. Um, but hey, uh, there was. Yeah. There's, do, you, do you remember there was a couple of weeks where, where people were looking at uh, Mike White saying maybe he should be in that mix, but uh, those days are those days have passed. Well, yeah, and it's funny because I think uh, had Florida gone two and zero this week, you know, you might have looked at it and said, eh, eh, make, you can make that argument. But but uh, ifs and buts, Florida goes zero and two, and for the second straight year misses out on the double buy on the last day of the season 
kind of a tough one for for Mike and the staff. Um, we'll see what what this week's hold. Let's go. Uh, I know we're going to have a. I'm trying to put together a podcast with an SEC tournament preview, but I've got to write this for Saturday down south before that would happen. So let's put Eric Fawcett on the spot. Who wins the SEC tournament? I, I think it's Alabama. No, no hot takes here. I just still think that they're like, like again, I see that the best teams in the league, even looking at Arkansas and LSU, I just think Arkansas plays the same style as Alabama, but Alabama is just so much better at it. And then I also think like the, the one place that Alabama is, is a little bit vulnerable. Um, I think is, is that the fact that they are a little bit, a bit small on the inside. And again, they've got so much length around the perimeter, but then, I mean, you even, you even saw it against Georgia for much of that game. That was like, much closer than you think it would be. It was like, you know, Alabama's all all long and, and big and all that until someone throws the ball underneath their hoop and suddenly they don't have that that big imposing physical player on the inside to to protect the rim. So so there's a like again, there's a chance that like a trend in Watford can take advantage of that. But but again, I, I, I don't think he's he's someone who's not like like he's definitely strong definitely physical but uh just doesn't have great length to finish over the top so i think uh yeah i i and of course lsu just doesn't defend it anywhere near the level that i think that they can win a few straight so so yeah i don't have any hot takes here i i I think alabama runs away with it so i'm gonna go with arkansas um so i don't think i'm really hot taking either one of the hottest teams in the country uh, I like their half of the draw a little better than I like Alabama's. Mm. Um, you know, I, again, because I just don't think LSU defends well enough um, to really be too problematic for them. One team that's interesting to me is Ole Miss just because of how well they actually defend. Uh, I think that they can certainly cause some problems for, for you know, LSU as well. So potentially – could open things up for Arkansas because I don't think that they can score enough to beat Arkansas. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, can people are probably going to want to do, I think Florida can beat Alabama. I think with the Gators, you really have to take things one game at a time, quite honestly. Uh, and, and we will on this podcast. I thought Florida played pretty badly against Alabama in the first game that they had or the only game they had against them in Tuscaloosa. And that was a very close game at the half. And it was before Colin Castleton was really a big time difference maker for Florida. So I think, um, you know, it's an interesting matchup uh, for the Gators. Certainly the Gators seem like the type of team that could, that could do some damage against the Crimson Tide. But then again, um, that was not the case the first time that they played. So uh you know, what kind of adjustments would Florida make to Alabama's ability to get in the paint? Um, you know, who knows? But I, I, I'm with Eric. I got to say it's it's an Alabama or Arkansas world uh, in Nashville this week. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, Moses Moody would be the best shot maker on either of those teams. So if they ended up playing each other and it's it's close Moses Moody might be uh, might be the difference maker but uh uh yeah it's 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 you know usually you look at uh, you kind of see a sleeper in that like you know five or six or seven position and, and think that they can make a run and yeah I, I don't know like like I could see I could see Missouri doing it I, I still really think that this Missouri team is really good so if I had to say like my like 
you know, quote unquote, like dark horse. I don't know how, how much of a sleeper Missouri really is. I, I guess that they're like seeding in the NCAA or in the SEC tournament would, would suggest they are. Um, I just think the fact that they can, uh, I, once again, I think that Jeremiah Tillman could just be the best player on the floor in some of these games and, and just neither or in Alabama just doesn't have a matchup for him on the inside. And, uh, maybe they shoot like they do against Florida. So, so I think Missouri might might make some noise. But uh, yeah, I think it's the 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 big boys at the top that are that are poised to uh, to take care of business. Yeah, definitely think it's it's got to be the big boys. And yeah, I mean, I think look, Ole Miss, Florida, Missouri. You could make cases that all any of them are the sleepers. Certainly, the way uh, Trey Mann had been playing, it looked like you know maybe Florida could get hot. But uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's going to be an interesting uh, event starting Wednesday night in Nashville. Thank you all for listening, and we will be back uh, after the first round game. Bye-bye, everybody.